Yes, yes, it is DJ Ski from Dash Radio, and you are now listening to the number one South Asian radio station in the world. I'm talking about Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian station. Let's go. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose, and what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by music artist, producer, curator, activist, and educator, DJ Rekha. Stay tuned. I'm a sucker for nostalgia, refreshing the power and vitality of youth and re-energizing the joy that it brings to the present. Speaking of joy, I'm grateful to you for listening to this and sharing it with your friends, for subscribing to the podcast and downloading and rating it, and for following us on social media at Dr. Abhaydandika. So recently I was reminiscing about the mid-90s and going to medical school in New York. Now these were very early days of the internet, pre-social media, and very organic ingredients for an incredibly diverse Desi youth subculture. In the spring of 1997, I went to a couple of parties at SOB's, downtown, close to Soho, that featured this really fresh and sonically wonderful and explosive mix of Bhangra, hip-hop, funk, Bollywood, dance and dub music, and more. Little did I know that this was the beginning of a vibrant, soulful, inclusive, and comforting community experience that for the next 20 years became the fixture party and movement that is Basement Bhangra, all masterfully curated and artfully presented by the iconic and pioneering Rekha Malhotra, also known as DJ Rekha. As a musician, producer, activist, and educator, their range is broad and diverse from producing music for NPR and Broadway to curating events for Central Park Summer Stage, from performing at the Obama White House and the historic Women's March on DC, to serving on the board of Chaya CDC to economically empower South Asian New Yorkers. Now, while Basement Bhangra ended in 2017, a 25th anniversary show is happening this summer, and so we caught up for a heartfelt conversation in reflection on the Basement Bhangra party, navigating it all without a roadmap, and going back to school to get a master's degree and also the responsibility of connecting with people on the dance floor and beyond. But we started by talking about whether the pandemic served up any major lessons as a DJ. Oh yeah, I mean, most DJs, we had to learn how to pivot to live streaming really fast. Technologically, how do you make your iPhone a good quality? Sound-wise, that was the first dose of like supply chain issues to find equipment in stock that could, um, you know, go from the out, the audio video out of your phone to a quality broadcast signal to learn about light that technologically, that part, um, luckily my good friend and colleague, Eddie stats found a, a really, um, simple kind of cheap solution, uh, of a, this old school PC game converter that allowed for it in stock at a a small store in Brooklyn. And then I think just DJing in your home, two people literally all over the world and trying to like engage in some way and also read comments. And yeah, that was, and then also like deal with the forces of 
platforms and technology sure. getting shut down for playing copyrighted material because there's no way to, you know, that's a whole other thing. So yeah, yeah that was definitely the most concrete pivot skill thing I had to, you know, learn quickly. You know, I would imagine that in when you're doing a live performance, when you're in front of an audience, you learn to adjust and improvise. And was this somewhat similar to that in that, you know, there were lots of adjustments quickly to make and, and that way you sort of stay on top of things or stay successful? I mean, so basically my first gig live during pandemic was initiated by Purna Jagarnathan, who's um actress and she's in the show Never Have I Ever and she like marshaled this whole like launch party. She's like, look, we're not gonna be on the junket. We need to do something for the show. It's a big deal. Can you DJ? I'm like, uh, all right, let me figure it out. And then she really um you know just basically reached out to everyone in the show, everyone she knew in India. So we were like dealing with time zones and shout outs. Like my partner was in the room on the phone with Purna, writing down notes for me to shout people out who were in the room. I guess that was some level of interaction, but it's weird because I don't plan my sets and I'm really about the crowd. So that was hard. And people do write comments. So I was talking a lot on the microphone, which I I don't like to do, but I felt yeah. it necessary. Uh, and part of that was from the initial party where I was compelled to shout people out. And then after the party, I just kept doing it Sundays. I did it for four months in a row every Sunday. And mm. it was so much like creative freedom to the point where I was like, I started planning out different sets ahead of time of styles of music I wanted to get into. So that was fun. It, it was hard to not have an audience in front of me. I like, I don't plan, you know, I, I vibe off yeah. the crowd. So when there's no crowd, <laughs> it's hard to vibe. I wonder if because it's sort of like this instantaneous feedback that you get mm-hmm. from the crowd around you, if the signals that you have to mm-hmm. process in order then to then adjust and kind of curate the music, if that was different. Well, I mean, people are, are, are chatting live. So sometimes, yeah. you know, randomly like, an obscure bunger producer joined in. I'm like, oh, are you like the high flyers? And I like pulled up their song. Not uncommon yeah. to saying someone's in the room, an artist is in the room or a celeb and you pull up their song. It is definitely like more immediate. And the longest set I did in my life as a DJ and during the pandemic is on election day, I DJed nonstop from polls open to polls closed. And of course, didn't really think that through because in New York, polls open at six and they close at nine. So I DJed <laughs> from six to nine nonstop. Yeah. And that was a trip. And as much as 15 hours is, as much as I thought I was going to go through all this music, and I did, there was stuff I still didn't get to. I was like, oh, I can do like an old school New York hip hop set and I can do this set and I can do. And it just took me in so many different places. I don't even know. Sure. You know, you know I lately have been reflecting a lot back on my own New York City experience almost 25 years ago. And and it's been 25 years since Basement Bangana started. I, mm-hmm. I'm always curious about what people were doing or or thinking just before sort of a momentous experience or or sort of a, an iconic experience, so to speak, was to start. How do you reflect 
I mean, thinking about what you just mentioned, sort of like this streaming um, DJ versus when you were first starting this back then, how do you reflect on that time frame? Thinking back on it now, especially what you went through the past couple of years. I mean, that was just a certain time in the history of our community in terms of a critical mask of young people of South Asian descent gathering in different spaces, art spaces. Based on Bunga is one of many things that started around that time. Mm-hmm. South Asian Women's Creative Collective started at that time. Uh, other orgs had started. I mean, 97 was sort of kind of a moment in itself. Of course, I was fortunate enough to have a community of friends who were like-minded, artistically minded, politically similarly minded. And Basement Bangra, you know, grew to be this thing. But when it was started, it was, when you're that young, you don't think what's going to happen later. Your sense of time is very distorted. And not distorted, it's appropriate for its age, but it's hard to have the arc, you know? I, I remember in like, the late 90s, everybody was celebrating all these Beatles histories when they first yeah. came, 90, you know, and I'm like, wow, I've hit all those milestones and then some, and that's just weird to me sure. at this point. I don't know. I think it was a community coming of age. I think there was a desire to gather and party. I think there was a critical mass of people in the city. Uh, you know, New York is sort of a, tr- can be a transient place. People come for a few years to go to school or professionally and then they they move on or their job brings them here or something. And I think all those different combinations of things kind of fueled that moment. Were you personally sort of poised for that moment or was it kind of a surprise? And for that matter, why was Bangara so uniquely sort of singular in you know, reflecting that, mirroring that community and, and bringing the community together and, and kind of being the, the platform, if you will, for you? Well, it's only a moment in retrospect. <laughs> when you're in it, you don't know it's a moment. I was 25, going on 26, trying to get out of college, not realizing I was struggling with severe ADHD, many jobs, college, trying to break away from the nest, uh, et cetera, et cetera. My parents, my dad's business prospects also up and down, you know, so I wasn't poised for anything. In terms of Bhangra, I mean, the reality of of Basement Bhangra's inception or its creation was to defy community norms. The Mm -hmm. norms were Bhangra represents or the feeling was Bhangra represents low-class Punjabi, working-class people. It's brutish. It's not sexy grown. We don't want that kind of music. We don't want hip-hop because it's thuggy. You know, explicitly was told, don't play hip-hop. Don't play that. At that time, you know, keep it top 40, keep it Bollywood. I mean, of course, this is sort of also representing a hegemony amongst the community of North Indian-minded cultural dominance, which is still the case. So within that still, but the opportunity came to come up with a new concept. I love Bhangra. It's once removed from me in that my parents grew up in Delhi. We're not from Punjab. We speak Punjabi, a Delhi Punjabi, which is not necessarily the same that's in the songs. The music, mostly I was attracted to, came from the UK. So we still had connections there, having been born there. My parents lived there for a while. Yeah. So I think, and just being a a New Yorker and loving hip hop. I think 
this is a unique situation of access to a style of music, being New York minded, loving DJing, lock, stock and barrel as an art form, not just as a tool to get private wedding gigs. You know, I think all those things sort of coalesced right. and, um, you know, the opportunity to create something was there. And, and I think people took to it just musically, not playing it safe, playing, playing things you like, yeah. playing, pushing things. And then really at that time before digital transmission of media, literally going to England to buy records and having a situation that I had, I had family friends whose couch I could stay on and coinciding with my, you know, continuing my growing interest in drum and bass, which fueled another club night mutiny, which yeah. was started with a bunch of friends, which was sort of fueled by the whole East London music scene, second gen British Asian music scene, a la Talvin Singh, State of Bengal, yeah. those who are working inspired by South Asian instrumentation and club music, but not necessarily Bhangra. I mean, Bhangra mm. gets a bad rap in a lot of places. In yeah. amongst those cool kids, Bhangra was seen as like wedding in India too. I mean, now it's different. Now you have, you know, AP Dylan, who is like Bollywood stars are mouthing his words. But for a long time within the community, we all have our biases, you know, not to mention things like colorism and casteism as well, you know, which is sure. still there. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the story, you know, don't play black music, don't play cab driver music. And I said, well, I'm going to actually play both. As you take that risk, as you forge ahead, as you now create a new space to merge these things and the ingredients all sort of magically were cobbled together and it, and it worked. Is there ever a danger or a risk in creating something new? And you sort of like stagnating with that? Or it, was this the kind of thing that when you reflect back, was it super dynamic? It kept sort of evolving and changing I mean, as time know, went on. You know, I, I don't know about, I mean, music keeps changing. You know, I think if the party was live today, monthly, we would be playing different stuff. We definitely incorporate global sounds more, reggaeton more, Afrobeat more. I know we would, we would probably be playing that. I think of all the songs that came out after the party ended. I'm like, oh, I never got to really hit, hear that on the Basin Bunger dance floor. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. When you create something and you put it out in the world, there's always a risk, you know? Yeah. And then there's cultural risks you take. You know, me referencing hip-hop so deeply as an African-American, or I would say a Black and Latinx art, you know, there's a responsibility that, that I have to be mindful of. Something I don't think I reflected on at the time. And now I'm, you know, definitely thinking about as I was called out by, by some youngins on their podcast. They were like, yeah. did you ever think about how I was like, wow, you know, I, I didn't think about it in the way you posed the question, but thank you for posing the question, you know? Sure. So, you know, stagnating. I mean, every artist is always challenging themselves. So you don't want to stagnate, but I, I don't know what that what you mean by stagnating i mean the, i f did feel creatively at 20 years it was time to you know go out on a high and to take a break for myself and all those things what i what i think about are people who now create a space for themselves mm -hmm. or create a new area and it's maybe hard for them to you know actors who get typecast perhaps or oh yeah um you know f folks who are like hey that's all i do and oh I, I get what you're saying oh no i mean you know you go see your b favorite band and they're not playing any of the hits they only want you yeah. to it's it's a balance you know right it's a balance of right. course you know 
And you say that, and in some ways, in that time frame, perhaps there was no real roadmap for this as a you know South Asian American DJ or an artist. When do you remember sort of first feeling that air of self-trust and confidence that, you know, I, I've got this? Uh, never. Still not. Uh, never? Nobody gets I don't know what that means. I, I, there is no roadmap. There still isn't a roadmap. I mean, I stopped based on Bhangra after 20 years, and then I went to get a master's in comparative media, you know? And who does that? I don't know. Is there a comfort in that to some degree that like, hey, there's no roadmap here. And, and I, I actually prefer that. Uh, no, <laughs> there's no comfort. in that. <laughs> um, I think when I was in school after basement, it was for the first time in 20 years, I knew what I was doing for the next two years. There was something yeah. extremely comforting about that. Every year for the last prior 20 years, I didn't know if this thing would keep going. I never knew every time for basement, I didn't knew is like, when is this bubble going to burst? Are we done? Are mm. people going to show up? Is it over? It's hard to get about that feeling. I had somebody that was doing books for me for a while and they were like, we need to forecast. I'm like, how do you forecast people's moods? You know, right. <laughs> like, right. I, you know, it's like, um, sure you can forecast, right. You can say, Based on prior history, we usually get X amount of people at least and at most this. So like to me, it's like putting a science to an art is a challenge, even though, you know, entertainment is big business, people have ways to do it, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, well, does it make it harder to perfect your craft in that way? Because you I'm, don't necessarily have always the data behind you or the roadmaps there, like you said. I don't know. I mean, the, there's different aspects to what the craft is. I mean, the craft is the actual DJing, the performance, you know, then it's the putting the thing, the event together, you know, you just keep, you just want your phone to ring. Yeah. For me, it's like my, my integrity is everything, doing things I believe in and I trust and feeling whatever, that's, that's what I rely on and playing stuff that moves me artistically. And in that, I'm also dealing with a very like, mass consumed what's considered low art, you know? And how do you make art out of things that people don't necessarily value? Sure. In 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 2022 for you, after having gone to school and gotten your masters, was that an accelerator of that feeling that hey, I'm doing something right. I I have some um mastery of of what I'm doing. No. <laughs> I, no i mean what i what i did in school was different it was connected but different yeah so i still think the learning struggles are still there school was uh, definitely a challenge because i had gone to grad school before and dropped out yeah because i got the record deal at the same time and other things were blowing up in my career and i had to make a decision and it always nagged me that i never finished and there's an intellectual side to me that that i wanted to nurture and I wanted to just stop worrying about this party every month. You know, it's yeah. like, it's like opening the store and um, uh, for what it's worth financially to be, to be perfectly frank, there was never enough gravy to like, it's, it was definitely like a small enterprise. Sure. So school was, um, I, I don't know, this idea of like getting it right or confidence or something that's, I don't, I don't know if that, that exists. I mean, 
I, I know, you know, fortunately no very successful artists. And I think we, I don't know, unless somebody's narcissistic, if they really feel that way. Yeah. I'm going to make a random recommend, a very random recommendation, which is sure. the Joan Rivers bio, um, documentary. It's Joan Rivers and she's hustling to get booked on cruise lines for money because she's, that's the hustle, you know? Yeah. You know, Sam Waterson, I mean, sorry, these references are all Caucasian. You know, with yeah. actors, it's like, it's really tough because I, I always feel for them because they're like walking into rejection on a daily basis if they have to keep sure. reading for parts. And then they could have a really good run and then all of a sudden not get, not get work again. Yeah. And, and that's tough. And that is art in general, you know, whatever yeah. your medium. Do you think that the listening public, you know, that drives a lot of the consumption of things you know, I mean, I'm, I can only speak from my own personal experience that the appetite, of course, for songs evolves into an appetite for sound packets or snippets and, you know, creating a whole that's perhaps different from the sum of the parts. As, as a DJ, are you, do you constantly have to just be cognizant of what the consumer or what your audience's appetite is for at any given moment? And then tailor, tailor what you're doing to that? Of course you yeah. have to, I mean, I, some DJs don't care <laughs> and yeah. some, it really depends on the context. I, I would say doing a private event. I mean, basically you should rock the dance floor no matter what the situation. Okay. To me, that's yeah. like fundamental, but from the scale of the private event to a festival, you know, that's, that's sort of the, the range of like how you really have to pay attention and, take directives and whatever, however that manifests to, you don't, you can do basically throw cakes at people, you know, yeah. my goal is to connect with people on the dance floor. I want to engage them in a way that they feel good about or that they can connect with. So if I'm constantly asserting my own agenda and they're not connecting with it, that's not, there's no point in that. Likewise, if they're asking me to play and this happens, I was doing a weekly residency, Lower East Side. People come in. It's a place where people go in and out. They come in. They're already a little drunk, and they ask for the hottest song of the night, and it's too early. Yeah. Or you've just played it. And that's every DJ's lament. You follow any DJ blog, Instagram. You know, requests are the bane of our existence. They yeah. can steer you, but sometimes they're fine. Sometimes the person is making a song, and the best is, I was going to play that next, by the way. Makes them feel like, great. You're negotiating that. And in terms of like, let me put the media scholar hat on in terms of attention span and consumption, you know, technology changes things. The, the medium dictates how you experience it. You know, if yeah. we think about the limitations of uh, the length of a recorded record and we think about taping long pieces of music, they have to be contained in the 12 and, you know, that side now because of, the dynamics of streaming songs are shorter again songs used yeah. to be short then they went long why did they go long f frequency modulation radio fm radio yeah. gave a higher fidelity prog rock i mean the arc of how people consume is is often dictated by cultural norms and technology you know yeah. i used to have to pick up a record from a crate pull it out put it on a disc a turntable lift up the needle, find it. 
Now I, in two seconds, I drag the file. Right. It already is. The cue point is marked. The BPM is, is apparent. The ability for me to change things has decreased. So you go through music faster. I mean, I was notorious, especially in the early days of basement, playing out the whole damn song. I wanted you to get all of it. And now I, even I can't yeah. do it. And even my attention span has, has right. Worked. Right. That's, you know, those things go hand in hand with technology. Um, and sometimes people miscalculate. <laughs> yeah. Quibby. Well, your experience, your maturity, your, your depth of what you've actually gone through can make you sensitive to that. And so you have empathy for, for how that's supposed to play out. Um, mm-hmm. And, and in many eyes, right. I mean, mine included, you're, you're a, in that way, sort of more of a South Asian American music icon. And you've been called a musical sort of ambassador by the New York Times. It's a headline I've ran with. (laughs) Yeah, and and you should, right? But, you know, what are some of the responsibilities that you've perhaps accepted in that that role, in running with it? You know, have you, and for that matter, have you always been comfortable with that? Or have you grown comfortable with that? I mean, you know, it's a little bit of like, whatever. I mean, I'm taking it with a grain of salt. I mean, I think it's complicated because I think one is at some point I turned a corner and said, well, I'm older now and it's my responsibility to help and mentor people in any way I can and be open and generous. And because I didn't have that doesn't mean I can't give it back. That's part of like community and it's part of building, you know? Yeah. It's also being ethical, you know, entertainment. There's a lot of people who are thirsty. They'll do anything and not taking advantage of those people, being transparent, and then being responsible in terms of the content and how you create your art, you know? Yeah. So I think those are the things that I feel responsible for. I mean, this titling, that's like, that's PR copy, you know? I mean, what does it mean that I, Ambassador Bunger in New York City and most artists in Punjab have probably not heard my name. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's all, it's all like, you know, it works in a particular context, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Does it somehow afford you to feel more or, or maybe less comfortable with this, with that ethical responsibility simply because those people perhaps in New York or in America will say that like, hey, they, they're pointing to a particular person that they see as a role model here. And that's you. I mean, I just think that's about being a good person, regardless of what you do. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. You've been such an engaged activist for empowerment and civic engagement and, and representation. In that light and in that spirit, when someone experiences your music, or comes to a live performance or listens online and and maybe they're listening to, to your work for the first time. How do you hope they feel afterwards? What do you hope they walk away with? I mean, I don't necessarily think the activism work, which I will say with a caveat that like being involved in community organizations through the years have been, I've been involved in varying degrees. So there are people who are full-time engaged activists. I'm not one of them. Of course, there's a basic level of representation of being out there and doing things and occupying spaces. In terms of playing, like like I said, mass-consumed music, that in and of itself is not necessarily empowerment or activism of itself, especially content-wise. But in creating spaces and 
you know, there have been times to use and leverage the art for the other, you know, and I try to do that where it's appropriate and tasteful in a way that doesn't force you. Do you hope that people, when they leave a party or a set, are, are thinking about not only the music, but then also kind of like who you are behind the music? Not necessarily. <laughs> I just hope when there are, when I am amplifying or highlighting causes or things that people are taking action. You know, I don't think coming yeah. to a party or me DJing should make them go. I think they, I hope they were like, yo, that was, that was fun. That was a good dance. That was a good yeah. experience. Yeah. Reka, it's been a, a terrific conversation and I'm so grateful that you came to join us. Thank you so much for joining and, and I hope you'll come back and join us again. Thank you. I hope too. Thanks so much, Reka. And DJ Reka has an event coming up this summer that you particularly don't want to miss. August 6th, free show, summer stage, Central Park Summer Stage, Basement Bungler's 25th anniversary. It's a one-day situation. Don't get it twisted. It's a great lineup. Uh, Jasmine Sandless, Red Barat, other great artists, Reginder, Sicknowledge, Ganavia. We have a bunch of DJs. I don't know how everyone's going to get time on the stage, but we'll make it work. Rajuju Brown, Z Muffin, DJ Ushka, Dave Sharma, who's now become David Sharma. So it's going to be a good time. It's free and all ages. Well, we can't wait. And Rekha, thank you once again. And best wishes for everything you do. Thank you so much. Whatever happened to late night slow jams on the radio? Join me, your host, Mandy Banga, as I inspire my listeners with velvety smooth R&B soul music and soul stirring conversations and enjoy a chill bedroom vibe. Caution, tuning in may just seduce your soul.